Welcome back, folks. My name is Robert Fleming. I'm a partner in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And you're listening to Elder Law Issues, our weekly podcast. With me, as usual, is my law partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We're going to talk today about blended families. You know, the image of blended families, Elizabeth, always conjures up a dark corner of my mind. I, I don't really mean to literally blend them. I think that would... That, that probably would be a bad thing. Yes, Robert, I think uh, we're not going to go there today. Yeah. What we are going to talk about when we talk about blended families, we're talking about the Brady Bunch. I think that when I think of a blended family, I think of Mr. and Mrs. Brady Carroll. And what was his name? can't you know, remember it. As a child who grew up without a television and who didn't watch the Brady Bunch anyway, uh, I'm always at a loss when we do those trivia things about name all of the Brady kids. <laughs> well, I, I think that that's a good place to start today. When we talk about blended families, we're really talking about a married couple, both spouses who have had children from previous relationships or marriages, coming together and making an estate plan that considers both of the spouses as well as their children and stepchildren and what that might look like those are often the cases robert where i find both the ethical issues of representation the joint representation of a couple um, talking about those things up front is especially important as well as what everybody's goal is what's what's the end goal once you and your spouse die um, that that usually takes at least one conference sometimes two I find that doing an estate plan for a blended family, when we speak to spouses on the onset, they may not be thinking about the end goal. They may be thinking about their prenuptial agreement and, and how to create an estate plan around that. I see this a lot in married couple clients, or not even married couples, couples, whether they're married or not, who come to see us, that they almost always have thought about what will happen if both of us die, but they may not have thought out what will happen if only one of us dies? And the thing that they've almost never thought out is what will happen for the 10, 15, 20 years after one of us dies when, when the other one is continuing to live their life? Will they marry again? Will they get into another blended family? Will the money leave the, the, the nuclear family, the original nuclear family? And Will they and, stay in the house? Will they stay in the house? Will they add on to the house? Uh, I mean, it's so hard to imagine not just surviving your spouse, but also what it will look like to survive your spouse. And I would say, Robert, we start with the assumption when we're doing a plan for a blended family that one of the priorities is providing for the surviving spouse. However, we have to keep in mind that in some cases, what they want to, what what a couple might want to do is they want to plan for their lives together while both of them are alive. And once one of them dies, they may want their plans to kind of split up so they have separate estates. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that kind of planning looks like when we see a division of an estate upon somebody's death? Well, so if, if uh, two people get married, they bring separate assets into the marriage, they have separate children, and they imagine that they'll pool their resources while they're together, and then when they die, each of their separate assets will go to their respective children then that looks a little bit like a, a probably a single but maybe a two separate trusts that um, that that each trust goes off on its own track so on the first spouse's death 
then money goes directly to that spouse's, the deceased spouse's children. But that's not usually what people want to do when they think about it. Usually, and I always tell clients, you get to be unusual if you want to. You don't have to follow the most common. But the most common principle is that they want to leave something for the benefit of the surviving spouse for the rest of their life and then to the children uh, that may be separate children. Sometimes they might qualify that and say, I want to leave enough money for the support of my surviving spouse for the rest of their life or until they remarry. That might be a consideration. Um, but, uh, but that kind of trust planning is a little more elaborate, requires the creation of irrevocable trusts or trusts that become irrevocable on the first spouse's death. And then we get to discuss who's going to manage that money, who's going to make the decision about whether to invest some of the money in the family house that might end up going to the surviving spouse um, or to pay for uh, a around-the-world cruise or, uh, or even regular spa days. Who gets to make those decisions? Is it the surviving spouse? Is it the kids from the first marriage? Is it an independent fiduciary? Uh, like the law office, or is it some other combination of people? These are often very difficult um, decisions to calibrate in individual families. And the conversations are private, they're delicate. And so what I try and, and say on the onset in some of these cases are just the fact that we want to create a harmonious situation for the couple during their lifetime. And on the death of the first spouse, we want to have a plan in place so there's actually a roadmap, not just for the surviving spouse, but for the children of the decedent, for the children of the spouse who died, because there's going to be a lot of questions. And I will tell you that generally speaking, if I'm working with a married couple who have a blended family, I try and encourage some transparency upon death, try and explain that there are going to be a lot of questions about what that surviving spouse's estate plan may look like, and what happens to the spouse who died. Can we share that person's will or trust with his or her children? And I find that being transparent about the estate planning process for those blended families with their kids, it can actually be very, very helpful so that there are no surprises when somebody dies about exactly what the intentions are to provide for a surviving spouse or to divide an estate. Um, we want to have people be able to be successful with the plans we create. And to make sure that there isn't conflict after the death of the first spouse that could have been avoided. It's uh, we, Again and again we hear, my father would never have wanted this. My wife would never have tolerated what her, her kids are trying to do. Um, uh, you know, everybody gets disgruntled after a poorly planned blended family estate plan. And Robert, I would tell you that when it comes to health care decision making, that's one of the most important things that we talk to families about. Oftentimes those documents, those powers of attorney, are some of the first that somebody will update when a spouse has died. And so in blended family situations, what we may see is the surviving spouse come in and not actually make any changes to a will or trust right away but decide that they need to update their powers of attorney. And so sometimes it's a planning process after death too, where we look at what the immediate changes need to be made just for healthcare considerations if your spouse has died. And we try and look at the assets and the dollars and cents a little separately. 
Um, the most important thing, I think, is that people really take their time to, to have these conversations. I've had cases, Robert, where we have existing clients from Fleming and Curdy who are returning to us and returning to us with a new spouse. And in those particular cases, as I mentioned initially, the representation, the joint representation of our existing client and a new client who may have different interests, that's something we have to talk about up front. And most of the time, people understand why those engagements may be a bit more complex. Oftentimes, we recommend that the spouse who we are just getting to know have a separate estate planning attorney review the estate plan. Because when we enter into those joint representations, Robert, and we have an existing relationship with with one of the spouses, that also gets complicated. So please understand, we're not trying to frustrate you. We're trying to make sure that we have a plan that's really going to work. How do you feel, Elizabeth, about prenuptial agreements? Do you wish that all second marriages involved a prenuptial agreement? That's a great question, Robert. It depends. I think that those cases where somebody is going to be married for a second or third or fourth time and the person is entering into marriage with somebody who has children if they don't have children of their own or both spouses have kids, I think prenuptial agreements can really be helpful. However, if you're using a prenuptial agreement, you've got to remember it has certain rules and standards that you're creating up front. And if you're not ready to follow them, throughout the second, third, fourth, tenth year of your marriage, you're going to have to revisit your prenuptial agreement. For people who get married for a second time and neither one of those people have kids, I don't always feel like a prenuptial agreement is such a necessary thing. But it's different from couple to couple, Robert. And how is it different, uh, if you see this very often, where there are children from a first marriage and children from the common marriage. In other words, uh, a husband and wife who may have had children before they got married and then have an additional child or two. Well, Robert, oftentimes what I see in those particular cases is where um, a married couple has a child in common. Normally that child is one of the first that they point to to help with fiduciary decisions. So as a trustee, for instance, because they feel that they both have a common interest in that child and that child may understand their step-siblings. And other times that I see when people have a child um, who they may have um, had together and their step-siblings, there can be a pretty serious age difference too. And in those cases, we have to talk a little bit about planning and how the considerations for providing for a minor child, for instance, might be different upon death. You might need to name a guardian for that son or daughter that you've had in your second or third marriage if the child's quite a bit younger than his or her step-siblings. I think the last thing I would say, Robert, is that planning for blended families involves discussions around community property. We are here in Tucson, Arizona, and the advice and and the input that we give our clients when they come in to see us is based on Arizona law. And today in the podcast, we're not talking specifically about Arizona law as opposed to a different state, but people need to understand that Arizona as a community property state makes it particularly important that we talk to people who live here and have assets here about what that means when they enter into a relationship or marriage for the second or third time, because those community property interests, Robert, are complicated to unwind. I think we're going to have to do a, a separate podcast on community property. You just 
you made me realize. Maybe we'll do that for next week. In the meantime, you've been listening to Elder Law Issues, the weekly podcast of the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. My partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and I, Robert Fleming, are happy that you listened to us, and we are hopeful that you will listen to us again. We really enjoy sharing some information and, and getting word out into the community. Join us next week, please.